It's Tuesday, March 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. On March 15th, New Zealand changed forever when a terrorist decided to kill 50 people at two mosques in Christchurch. That terrorist also live-streamed his attack and it spread online for hours. A lot has been made about how ineffective social media platforms were in containing the video and its copies. Facebook, for its part, said it removed 1.5 million videos with images from the shooting. Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post, joins us for how YouTube handled the situation. They assembled a team of incident commanders and hit the panic button, disabling searches for recent uploads and cutting out human content moderators, letting AI take the driver's seat. Next, we are learning more about the two Boeing 737 MAX jet crashes that have grounded the plane from operating. Increasingly, it seems that the culprit was a new MCAS flight control system that was put in place. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for the latest. Pilots were not adequately trained on how to operate this new system, and now there are investigations into how the plane itself was certified. It seems time constraints and trying to compete with Airbus pushed the FAA to defer to Boeing in certifying the MCAS system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Now, obviously, these social media platforms have wide reach. This is a problem that goes well beyond New Zealand. It has played out in other parts of the world. So whilst we might have uh, seen action taken here, that hasn't prevented them being circulated beyond New Zealand shores. Joining us now is Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about the tragedy that happened in New Zealand one of the main things that really took off with this story is how it played out online. The attacker, the terrorist, had a camera mounted on a helmet and he live streamed this whole thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we get these tragedies, we are always piecing together the story after the fact through witness videos with a lot of commotion, things like that. This one is a little bit different. We had the live stream. And one of the things that have always been talked about is the role that social media platforms and these big tech companies play in responding to these things. How do we manage all the videos that get posted up if there's anything bad on there? And this one in particular just got away from a lot of people. Liza, you spoke to YouTube, to their chief product officer on how they handled this because within 24 hours of this thing going on, I mean, millions of videos were posted, just either the the exact video or variations of the video, and it was just so hard to get a handle on. So what did YouTube specifically do to, to try to address this? YouTube did a lot of things and tried many, many things until they basically hit the panic button, in my view, but it wasn't enough. You know, it, until they hit the panic button, it wasn't enough. They took down, first of all, they disabled the accounts, the killer the, himself, and then lots of people associated with it. They did take down tens of thousands of different videos in the first 24 hours, and they also, you know, checked their search. So if you went into, like, the main YouTube and you just searched for New Zealand or searched for it, you wouldn't be able to find it from a main search, a more, you know, just type in the search bar. And also, if you remember, you, you all know autocomplete, you know, when you right. type something in and the computer, the software, especially Google, they, they fill in the rest for you. In the past, autocomplete has been a problem. Like during, I think it was the Vegas shooting or it was another mass shooting where 
the autocomplete on Google was actually filling out the name of it was it was said so and so Antifa even though the killer had nothing to do with Antifa so autocomplete has been a problem in the past in this case autocomplete wasn't a problem so they're saying they're going through their checklist and they're saying okay check 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 but what was a problem is the volume and velocity of videos they said was unprecedented. They said at times it was basically uploading one video per second, different users. So there's like highly motivated people who are out there who were really inspired by the killing and were actually organizing on other platforms, telling one another to get together and start posting and post en masse and post to YouTube. Because why? Well, they know that the more you actually post and you generate interest in a piece of content, then the YouTube algorithm, and this is similar to Facebook, but YouTube's a little more public about it because Facebook, you know, can't always see because it's just your friend. But what do the YouTube algorithms do? Well, they turbocharge that content. So this is what happened after the Parkland shooting. People were calling the victims crisis actors, and they were so organized about those videos that they were actually able to push videos where they called the victims crisis actors, even though it's a falsehood, to the very top of YouTube because they were very well organized. And you're like, who are these crazy people that are so just evil in the right. world that, that want to do this? But that is really the case with the internet. And it was the case with this shooting too. And in this case, it overwhelmed YouTube. Also, they did a good job actually servicing authoritative sources like the main newspapers in New Zealand. They put a banner on top of their homepage so that anybody interested in that story would see the authoritative source first. But the thing is with YouTube, there's so many ways to discover content. And as you know, the system's always recommending new content to you based on what you viewed. So if you just clicked on recent uploads, that's where they were screwing up. Right. All the recent uploads were showing horrific images of the video until they basically hit the panic button. And I can tell you what that looked like and how that's really not a solution because <laughs> the panic button is still hit now. They actually disabled yeah. major features of YouTube in order to to stop the bleeding. And for this story, you spoke to Neil Mohan. He's YouTube's chief product officer. He said that this tragedy was almost designed for the purpose of going viral. So describe to us what happens when they get into the room. They have these incident commanders who jump on when these crises are happening. And their whole job is to basically track down every iteration of the video, whether it be modified or not to take it down. And, and as you were alluding to, part of what they do is they have, uh, you know, algorithms that flag these videos. They have real people, content moderators that flag these and take them down. And one of the things they had to do when they hit that panic button was disable all the human moderators. They needed to get a handle on it much quicker than that. Basically let the AI take the driver's seat and delete all these videos as quickly as they could. Yeah, it's really interesting how behind the scenes, and I say behind the scenes because Facebook has done it very publicly, where Facebook has talked a lot about what they've done to crack down on abuse in the last two years since they launched live video in 2016. I guess that's three years now. YouTube has is later to the game of scrutiny, and for the, I would say YouTube's efforts date back to about fall of 2017. I would say a tipping point in fall of 2017 for them was the Vegas shooting, um, mass, mur mass murder in Vegas, the gunman. That was a big tipping point there because so much misinformation came out on YouTube, and also the Russia hearings, which happened in the fall of 2017 as well, where the companies were really under fire for your spreading information that from a foreign power that can meddle in our election. And so that triggered a change in YouTube's operations. What they've done, fast forward to today, is they've created 
incident commanders, they have war rooms, they have what's called an intel desk, which is a group of people whose job it is to spot emerging trends on other websites. A lot of this problematic stuff emerges on other sites before it emerges on YouTube. Their job is to consult experts about certain emerging trends and get ahead of things, be more proactive. They've hired about 10,000 content moderators, but you have to remember Content moderators are real people, and it takes them a while to get up to speed on stuff. And so even after they announced hiring many thousands of content moderators, you still saw those problems with the crisis actors in the Parkland shooting. And they said that that was because they hadn't really had time to train up the moderators well enough. So you can really see that their operation, when it's stress-tested against a tragedy like this, is just not effective enough. And that's long been the criticism when these things happen, videos, these information, the bad stuff spreads so quickly. And they've been criticized for how slow they are to respond to this. But even as just you're describing right now, they're putting so much manpower, a lot of effort into it, and it still isn't enough. And, And it is a growing problem in just the online world. This stuff just spreads so quickly, despite their best efforts, it's still getting around too quickly. But I got to say to you, despite their best efforts, they're also part of the problem because they create algorithms that spread the content. They have an algorithm that when a lot of people click on something, they spread it to other people. They put it on the top of the feed. They are making curatorial decisions in their algorithms. So I, I talked today to a former director at YouTube who told me, and this is just really hits on the point to me, 10, nine years ago at YouTube, anytime anything was on the homepage, that piece of content was heavily scrutinized and reviewed by people. It was a much smaller platform back then. It was a different world. People reviewed those things. And yes, they allowed citizen upload, but for the things, the pieces of content that most people saw on the homepage, those got reviewed by people and they got a lot of scrutiny. But today, we're in a completely different world because the scale is so much bigger because most people don't find content by going through the homepage. It's, it's personalized algorithms. My homepage looks different from your homepage. And so they are playing an active role in spreading the content with no oversight. So I just want to point out, yeah. in a way, it's, it's a problem of their own making. And the consumer wants that too. They want to go live right away. They want to do these quick videos that can be posted instantly. They don't want to wait for a moderator to approve something. Do you think that the way the trends are going and the way we need to address some of this stuff, that that might be the future again of where videos need to be approved before they're even posted? I can't imagine lawmakers forcing companies to to do that prior approval, though there are a lot of people who will say the only way that they're going to stop this problem is by prior approval. Another thing you could do is you could just pull the algorithms that spread content as quickly. So maybe you let people upload things when they want, but you're throwing fuel on the fire. So maybe you allow them to start their fire, but you don't put the fuel on it. And someone today compared it to Tristan Harris, compared it to like, you know, when Tylenol discovered like 10 years ago that their some of their Tylenol was poisoned. You know, they just did a huge recall and every Tylenol went off the shelf. So you say, well, what would be the equivalent for a tech company in pulling the Tylenol off the shelf? Well, they're not going to shut down their site, but they might say, we're going to stop some of the key features that are spreading this. And effectively, that is in a way what YouTube did by hitting the panic button because they disabled a feature called recent uploads. You know, anyone can check on YouTube. They can just go to the main search or if they want to see what's Mm -hmm. been recently uploaded, you just click recent uploads. Well, right now, recent uploads doesn't work. 
for any type of content in the world, not just for the shooting. So you say, well, that is kind of like they're recalling the Tylenol. They disabled <laughs> recent uploads. Yeah, and just the way, I mean, everything was working out. They were hashing the video. And the people were uploading it with different keywords. It was just impossible to really get a handle on. And, and it is something that needs to be addressed very soon. Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. To be fair to Boeing, there are just certain things that it cannot say during an active aircraft investigation. But when it comes out and says, we believe the airplane is safe, they need to tell you why they believe the airplane is safe. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. We're learning more about the Boeing 737 MAX jet. It's been grounded indefinitely now after the two deadly crashes that we've had. One, the Lion Air crash back in October, and then the one last week from Ethiopian Airlines. You had a note in your article that uh, just rings so true. No plane crash is ever the result of one factor alone. And that's what makes it so important why we have to analyze everything and see what really happened, what led to all of this. Andrew, tell us what we're learning. Basically, you can think of the 737 MAX as the newest version of the 737, but really, it's a brand new airplane. Right. So the way that Boeing sold it was, hey, if you're an airline that has a fleet of 737, you don't have to retrain your pilots to fly this plane. You don't have to put them through simulator training, which is expensive and takes them off the flight line. You can just do an iPad training course for an hour or read these 22 pages of manuals and they'll be able to fly this new plane. That was possibly criminal in oversight of exactly what was part of this plane. Even though it's a yeah. similar plane, it had more powerful engines, it had a redesigned tail, a yep. new wing design, some new software, which is this flight control system that is at the center of this, this MCAS flight system. So, I mean, it's actually a lot more different than people would think. And you're talking about the training. I mean, these the updated training that these people were doing were on iPads instead of, as you said, in a flight simulator, something more robust. If you looked side by side at a 737-800 and a 737-800 Mac, you as an ordinary person, maybe not a pilot, would note the differences immediately. The tail looks different. The way the tail sort of slopes up is different. The engines are different and located in a slightly different position. The wing looks different. The end of the wing looks different. And if you went in the flight deck of one of them and then the flight deck of the other, it's completely different. The flight deck of the 737 MAX is much more similar to the 787. So what Boeing did was they designed a software system that basically sits between the pilot and the plane and makes the plane act as if it's any other 737. That's the MCAS system. System, which is designed to counteract one of the differences of the plane, which is the new location of the more powerful, efficient engines, which can cause a particular complication, which can cause a, what's known as a high-speed stall. So they put this system in so that it would have pushed the nose down if you're entering a high-speed stall. But they used as input for this system only one sensor on the nose. What that means is if one angle of attack sensor which is just one little thing that looks like an arrow pointing out of the nose, is not functioning properly. That means the MCAS system is not going to function properly. And the weird thing is that it has two of them, 
but it was only taking the sensors from one. So uh, apparently yeah. that was the faulty one. And why wouldn't the system take inputs from both? The other thing about this whole story is that Boeing was struggling to try to keep up with the new Airbus plane that was going to be coming out. So they had to speed a lot of things along the way. They had to get it certified much quicker. So the FAA put a lot of the oversight, a lot of the uh, safety certification on Boeing itself. It's like, hey guys, you're already working on this. Just write us the report and we'll sign off. That's basically what it seemed like happened. And there was all sorts of things that weren't true in the report that Boeing submitted and it threw people off when uh, you know things were different uh, on the actual plane. So you basically have a Boeing team sitting on the production floor that would be designated as FAA people, but their paychecks come from Boeing. Right. And then you'd have the Boeing people for Boeing. And there was tension, as the Seattle Times reports, there was a lot of tension between FAA people in D.C. and FAA people designated to Boeing and what they were allowing Boeing to determine. And the report that they got on the MCAS system seems to show something that is not what the actual MCAS system does in the sense that it may not have been accurate in terms of how large the fluctuations it was allowed to cause on the tail would be in terms of a degree of rotation of the tail. It didn't quite accurately describe this problem, which seems to have occurred in both crashes, which is that once the pilot overcame the MCAS, the MCAS reset and kicked in again and again and again. And that's why the reports were that the pilots were constantly fighting with the system. Exactly. And the last the last one, too, was a, a matter of words between catastrophic and hazardous. And it's like, both are really bad. Both are really bad words. And it depends which category a system is in makes a difference for which like path of regulation the FAA chooses to go on. And what seems to be happening now is there's been efforts within Boeing to come up with a software fix for the MCAS system to take um, those two readings rather than just one into account to change it so that it won't kick the uh, horizontal stabilizer so much so that the nose will point down so significantly. Things like that. However, you now have the FAA, the Department of Transportation's Inspector General's Office, the Department of Transportation in general. According to the Wall Street Journal, you also have a grand jury looking into FAA oversight of this aircraft. So you have all these investigations and an upcoming congressional probe where the House Democrats are going to start investigating how this was approved. So Boeing may be planning a software fix to get this plane back in the air in April or May, but they're still going to be battling bad headlines and continued undermining of the public's view of the safety of this plane. And from a business perspective, this is their best-selling plane. This is their flagship. So for these investigations to get triggered is probably the appropriate response, I think many people would argue. However, as a business for them, it's a pretty significant challenge to try to get this plane back up in the air while assuring the public of its safety. At the same time, everybody's going through exactly what happened to allow this plane in the air before any flight simulators had even been built to allow pilots to train on it. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.